This episode contains content that some people may find upsetting and some very strong language. Are you going to do, Suze, are you going to do the little needle drop for the theme tune? It's just kind of, it's become, you know what it's become? It's become like a kind of comfort blanket. It's like, okay, the program's <laughs> starting now. It's, you know, I, I can be it's your theme professional. Tune, it's, my, it's my theme tune, yes. Yeah. Hello, I'm Andrew Mail, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club place where music lovers, musicians, crate diggers, writers, readers and special guests get to share their love of classic albums, weird lost gems and brand new revelations. My guests today are Mojo Reviews editor Jenny Bully. Hello. And Mickey Bereni. Hello. Mickey was the lead vocalist and guitarist for much-loved dream pop four-piece Lush from 1987 to 1996 and she currently fronts the magnificent Poroshka alongside her partner Moose McKillop bassist Mick Conroy and drummer Justin Welsh. Hello, I'm Mickey Bereni and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club. Is it enough to just say Mickey Bereni? Surely, surely everyone fucking knows who I am. Yeah, right. <laughs> the record Mickey has brought in to talk about today is 30,000 Feet Over China by The Passions. But we really should start by saying something about your magnificent new memoir, Fingers Crossed, which comes out at the end of September. Um, I was talking earlier to um, Jenny, mm. we were basically saying that we can be a bit jaundiced about mu- books by musicians, rock memoirs, and this is so much more than a mere rock biography. I mean, it's, it's powerful, it's funny, it's insightful. It kind of it, it moves from... An anarchic and chaotic childhood to the sort of emotional turmoil and heartbreak of your of your time in 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 Lush. I mean, there's loads to talk about here, but I think maybe we should just get our bearings first by playing a little snippet of Lush and Poroshka and Mickey at her best. So first, we'll hear Lush's haunting autobiographical "Light from a Dead Star" from their 1994 album Split, and then Poroshka's brilliant "Everlastingly Yours." which sounds like a love song, but is in fact a tale of emotional revenge. Everlasting Yours on Bella Union. The reason I chose those two songs is because the autobiographical and, and the unflinching always seems to have existed in your songwriting. It always seems to have been an element in things that you want to write about. But this book goes way beyond that to some pretty dark places. I mean, you, you write about the emotional and physical abuse you experienced as a kid. You write about the foul sexist world of 90s lad culture and Britpop and then you also have to address and and, and write about the the suicide of 
your best friend, the lush drummer Chris Ackland. I really did feel like I got to know him. So, and I and I could tell as we got towards the end, it's like there's these amount of pages left, and there's these amount of pages left, and there's these amount of pages left, and I knew where it was going to end, mm. and I knew that the, that's where the book ends, and that was really hard. Yeah, to read that, you know, it's fucking sorry. hard writing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it was just what was the spur that caused you to want to revisit those memories so many of them are, which of which are quite traumatic um <clears throat> i mean i think because I, I was approached to write this book um i it's not something i would have done off my own bat at all obviously yeah. you've written lyrics but had you ever sat down and thought I'm going to write a book, novel. Absolutely not. <laughs> no way. Not on my radar. I wouldn't have done it if I hadn't been asked. In fact, when I was first approached, I was like, not interested. Then I lost my job. <laughs> and lockdown was looming. I thought, okay, hang on a minute. <laughs> um, let me just have a think about it. And... Um, I think the first sample chapter they asked for was like, OK, why don't you just write about Lollapalooza? Because that's kind of a sort of self-contained, easy thing, you know. So I did that. And then when I was thinking about what to put in the book, you know, it all starts to unravel a bit because I just thought, if I write, the relationship between me and Emma is so core to Lush mm. that it would be really difficult to avoid it you know I don't want to sort of I didn't feel like I wanted to sort of get my revenge on everyone and go eh, everyone was really nasty to me you know <laughs> it wasn't that but I just thought well, what is the point of writing this book if you're not going to cover the stuff that is actually the interesting stuff like I'm not going to lie a lot of the kind of oh yeah we went on tour and we got you know we met Pearl Jam or we you know hung out with whoever blah I actually find all that stuff quite dull that kind of rock anecdote. It's funny if you're there, but it's really boring. Like my daughter, every time I even mention anything like that, just rolls her eyes and goes, <laughs> oh, for God's sake, you know. So I get it. And I just thought what's actually really interesting about the story of Lush and even my memoir is the conflict stuff, you know, because it's not just about putting it out there and saying, you know, oh, it was really difficult dealing with that. It's actually how it felt to deal with it because it isn't all misery. It's not a misery memoir. It's no. not like, look at my terrible life and how I survived. There's a lot of stuff that was actually quite funny in it. And it also is just what formed my personality. This is why who yes. I am who I am. I think it's significant that you um, kept a diary for years as well, isn't it? Because that must give you a huge advantage when it comes to recall. Yes. I mean, I would <laughs> I think one of the most traumatic things was having to read through my teenage diaries because <laughs> it was just like a mental health breakdown, you know. And teenagers are incredibly solipsistic. So course, yeah. every kind of, you know, obsessive replaying of some tiny melodrama, you know, it was just... Um, you actually think, oh, my God, I wasted so much time worrying about this stuff. But I think it was really immersive and it did... You know, I think when you, if you sort of ask someone before they've thought about it, what are the moments that you would put in an autobiography? And they would pick 
you know, the obvious significant things that might have happened. But I think when you have that source material and you can look at stuff and you suddenly remember things that actually you've probably buried because they are quite complex, Mm. you don't necessarily come out of it so well yourself. But that's Mm. actually the interesting stuff. I think (laughs) one of the strengths of the book is the way in which you manage to sort of avoid the cliches or or safe phrases and you do manage to write about how complicated and yeah. all the grey areas that exist in this, that it's not just this was bad, this was good. Mm. You're kind of, there is, there is a process of analysis that you're kind of, you're totally involved in while you're reading the book. And you're going, and it's, I, it just, that strikes me as something that is a real skill to be able to write like that about mm. these things that happen to you. I mean, I, thank you for that. It's bask in that for a moment. I think uh, what was quite difficult at the beginning, and I was getting kind of shoved a little by the the publisher and the and my agent, because I actually found it much more easy to write about other people and characterise them, and I'd get really lost in these personalities, like my stepdad and my dad, and you know Emma's family, like all school. And that's where, like, I felt really comfortable. And they kept sort of saying, you need to put yourself into this, you know. Um, so I think I struggled for a while because it's that, it is a bit me, 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 me. I felt a bit uncomfortable with that. Like, and this is what I think and this is how I felt. So that took quite a long time. And I think the diaries did definitely help mm. with that because it did make me realise that I wasn't just tossed around on this sea of stuff that happened. Yeah there was a kind of reaction to it and there was a, a actions that I did, you know. And it's difficult because, you know, you're writing about things. I mean, I don't know, you know, there's loads of kind of sex in it, in, in a kind of, not blow by blow, right? <laughs> but, you know, just, yeah. you know, relationships and boyfriends and promiscuity and blah, blah, blah. But again, you know, to try and avoid that just being a sort of brag list of wild times to try and get into the psychology of what I was actually, why I was doing it. it, didn't really make me very happy, you know what I mean? And I'm not a psychologist, so I was sort of feeling my way through this. And I don't want to offend anyone, you know, who's been through abuse or has any of, uh, have had any of those things. So the only thing I could do was just be really, really honest about my own experience yeah. and just say, well, look, this is how I felt. doesn't mean you'll feel the same way and I don't have any grand overview of how to avoid or solve these problems, but this is what it felt like. Mm. And yet that, the sort of rawness of it, it's not just confessional. There's obviously an attempt at every stage to sort of find some insight and, you know, because there's so much, Andrew alluded to the kind of confusion in grey area and we always... You know, in this day and age, there's so much talk about... Um, What's the word? Clo- <laughs> closure. Con- closure. No, <laughs> more like consent. Oh, and, sorry, yes. You know, and you sort of go into all that grey area and say that, you know, this is why people end up feeling complicit in their own abuse because it's just really confusing. You know, you don't necessarily feel like a victim for a long time. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting and really well handled. I mean, I think I did think about it quite a lot at the time even. You know, the diaries are, there's a lot of agonising. Oh, why am I doing this? And am I a bad person? Or maybe it's their fault. Maybe it's someone else's fault. Maybe it's what happened to me as a kid. And there Mm. is all of that. But I think, um, yes, I know what you mean. I didn't want to just sort of 
present it as a blank, look what happened to me. There is, because I did think about it a lot and I did agonise about it a lot. And I think that's what anyone would do who goes through those things. It's not black and white. It's not enough to say like, I mean, I don't know, you know, with a lot of, as you say, that kind of victim blaming, you know, there's a, no one wants to victim blame. But if you just say this terrible thing happened to me and you are made to say you are not allowed to feel in any way complicit, you're not allowed to be made to feel like you in any way instigated that, it just doesn't ring very true, that's all. I could have just walked away from certain things and I didn't, right? Mm. And I can understand that there are psychological reasons for that, but it doesn't really cover how you viscerally feel. It feels like a lie, basically, to say that. You said earlier that it there's a lot of humour in the book and it's an incredibly funny book. I mean, you that you you managed to write about your your childhood, which is not a lot of fun a lot of the time, but you write about it with such humour and that there is a scene where you go on this what sounds like this glamorous European road trip with your dad, Ivan, and your and your terrifying senile grandmother, Nora. <laughs> And you're reading about this and you think, you know, d- d- Mickey's life wasn't all bad. She's like, her dad's taken her off on this scenic European road trip. And then you find out that they're having to finance the trip by selling these job lot shower parts and, <laughs> and safari jackets. And they're having to get out at roundabouts in European capitals and model the safari <laughs> jackets and, and show off the shower parts to make money to pay for the trip. And once you get into those surreal comic moments it's just oh I mean I know it's everybody says lol laugh out loud but I was properly laughing out loud when I was reading as well so that I think it's that mix the way in which you kind of manage to sort of see the humor in it as well and aware of how sort of surreal and ridiculous and funny a lot Mm. of this stuff is well it was ridiculous yeah I mean funny enough that was the first thing when I was started writing the book that's what Moose said you've got to put that stuff in about selling bathroom parts on the streets of Vienna. You can't leave that out. All right, I'll put it in, I'll put it in. But, yeah. And there's, even, there's that little footnote, isn't there, about your, your mum's ex who's claiming to have possibly fathered Aston Kircher until you point out that he was a twin. And then he goes... <laughs> and then he says... What's it's his just, defence? Just, 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 just Ashton's half of the womb, possibly. Amazing. Like, brilliant. <laughs> You're listening to the Mojo Record Club with me, Mickey Brenny. Can I be a member? I think the other thing as well is you, you write so well about yourself as a teenage music fan and, and female friendship and going to gigs and the, the insecurities and, and the power of music. And I'm, I'm really pleased that the, the, the record that you've, you've chosen to bring in today kind of, kind of brings all that together. Um, we'll talk about it in a sec, but first I want to let... Um, Simon Bates introduced the group and their singer, Barbara Gogans. With Richard, of course, at number 15, and behind me, a new band called The Passions with a lady singer called Barbara who writes great songs. And to prove it, she's going to sing her latest one, which is called I'm in Love with a German Film Star. Oh, my word. Brilliant. Fantastic. Ladies, La- I know, 
Love with a German Film Star by The Passions, released by Polydor. So the record is 30,000 Feet Over China by The Passions, released in 1981 on Polydor Records. So my first obvious question is, was this a record that you discovered as a teenager? Um, Yeah, I was was actually frantically trying to date when I would have got into this record. Did you say it was out in... So German Film Star... Came out in 81, Mm. yeah. And and German Film Star was 81 as well. So that was January 81. I think the album came out, like, after the summer or something. So it's just interesting because it was just... Emma came to the school, I think... That September. So what's, what's the, what school were you at? That was at Queen's College. Yeah. And um, so it was, I was at Queen's, probably quite newly arrived. I think, you know, everybody watched Top of the Pops. Yeah. You know, I didn't really, ha- I didn't have older siblings. And actually, once I ended up with a group of friends at Queen's, none of us did. So we didn't really have that kind of, oh, you know, my older brother's into the doors or something. You know, we were just totally guessing our way. And the charts is like a really obvious place to begin. Everybody yeah. watches mm. Tom of the Pops and blah, blah, blah. So, and I think what you end up with is also trying to find your own thing. So you have a group of friends, like Maxine and Bunny were like the police, all over the police. There was no way I could get in there. Um, <laughs> you weren't allowed. When I was at Labrick Grove at a state school before I went to Queen's, it was very scar, you know. Actually, I did love the specials and madness, all of that. But I think there was, um, you know, it's, it's something about finding your own one, right? And I think the passions were, you know, it was one hit. I mean, in my head, I thought it went way higher than that. It wasn't, well, it was actually only... It's 21, it got to number 21 in right. the charts. So not actually, even the top 20. No, and basically Polydor screwed up. I think they failed to press up enough copies of the record. No way. So after they appeared on top of the pops, people were turning up to record shops trying to buy the record and there weren't any copies for sale. And they didn't press... And the, and when they finally did press up enough coffee, copies, that the moment had, had been and gone. That's terrible. Yeah. That's for a major label. Yeah. Bloody well, young. because I think they had no clue as to what was going to happen with that record and what, you know, whether that was going to be a hit or not. There literally weren't enough copies for people to buy. Wow. <laughs> when you read interviews with Barbara Gogan, I think she is still fuming about that now. No shit. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, but, funnily enough, I wouldn't have bought the single anyway because I didn't even have a bloody record player till I was about 15. But I had like a Walkman. Because I used to go to Japan, so I had a Walkman sort of quite early on when yeah. they were sort of quite unknown. Uh, but it just meant I could only have cassettes. <laughs> and, so, and, I, and so I sort of had that album on cassette and probably only knew German, German film, film star. star. And this used to happen to me a lot. Like I'd buy like a Blondie album and I think Parallel Lines was all right because there was enough hits on it. But there was one hit on this record, mm. right? Yeah. <laughs> it's the first song. Yeah. So then I'm sort of stuck with two sides of just, you know, having made that investment. And this used to happen to me a lot. But it was a really good way to get into music because it was like, right, you're just going to have to like this. Absolutely. I think <laughs> because... that, that happened to everyone. Yeah. And you would tell mm. your mates, you go, they go, what's it like? And you say, there's a couple of good tracks on it. Yeah. There's a couple of good tracks on it. And you would convince yourself that this was, that you'd you'd paid money for this record. <laughs> yes. So it was good. And you would listen to it over and over again. Absolutely. And 
and I think also with cassette, you couldn't skip any tracks. No. <laughs> well, you could, but it's a real pain, isn't yeah. it? So I think... But it was really good for me because I think I was probably, like I say, 13, heading into 14. And I think that there's something about forcing yourself at that age to kind of expand even the way, like really unfamiliar sounds, you know, it doesn't sound like anything that you're really used to. You know, I think what I like Barbara Gogan has got, I mean, she's got a great voice, but it's much more fragile than the mainstream would have normally had at Absolutely. that time. Absolutely, and it's, I mean, it's quite a different sound from the sound they started out with. I should probably give a little bit of background on, on who they were. They came they came out of the same West London squat punk scene as The Clash. I mean, yeah. Wow. And, um, and in fact, the German film star that she sings about is actually... Um, Clash roadie Stephen Rodent Connolly because he'd been he'd been in a German miniseries in 1989 and so I think he she's taking the piss of, uh, out of out of Rodent by saying I'm in yeah. love with a German film star um, and like Lush they were two women and two men including the singer and guitarist Barbara Gogan and they're a massive John Peel favourite they did three sessions between the end of 1979 and the end of 1980. And um, their first record came out on Fiction Records, Home of the Cure. And there's an interview online with um, Barbara Gogan where she says, yeah, we, we toured a couple of time with the, times with the Cure, but we didn't really hang out with them. We were we were older, political, squatters, feminists. They were much more suburban. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless. I know. And, kind of, and so the first album's really quite jagged and mm. kind of, it's like very like the au pairs or, yeah. or Girls at Our Best or something like that. And made with Mike Hedges, who of course yes. would go on to work with Lush on the split. Yeah. Yeah. And is that, is, is that something that you discussed? Did you ever ask him about? I don't think I was aware of it. Right? Oh, right. No, wow. I wasn't at all. I actually looked it up when, I think I looked it up on Wikipedia and I was yeah. like, oh, Mike Hedges did that. <laughs> I didn't even know that. But their sound, their sound on 30,000 Feet Over China, it's proper ethereal proto-dream pop. A lot, lot of time yeah. it sounds like Lush, doesn't it? I think so, yeah. <laughs> but was that a conscious influence? Were they something where you said, oh, this, you know, this, I like the sound of the passions, we should kind of try and do something like that? I, d I don't think it was. You know, I don't think that I would have consciously name-checked them. I mean, it's difficult because I, I sort of forget, you know, the press at the time, if you mentioned a band that yeah. didn't fit mm. the story that they had, they just disregard it. Yeah. So I mentioned countless bands that they, they just put the Cocteau Twins. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter what, you, what I say. And um, so I think what fascinated me when I was thinking about Lush and thinking, God, this is actually quite lushy, um, was that... There is something to having those very early records embedded in your head that just expand your sort of musical vocabulary and make it just part of it so it doesn't feel unnatural. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I can imagine sort of writing songs and not exactly knowing where they came from, but you, I play that and I think, well, this is what I was listening to when I was 13, probably non-stop for yeah. like several months. So it's in there somewhere, mm. even if you don't know where it came from. Absolutely. Consciously. Because, I mean, this Passions record, the, the parallels with Lush continue, don't they? Because the, the first two tracks were made with Pete Wilson, the two singles, and then they wanted him to work on the album, and he couldn't. So they got Nigel Gray, who'd, who'd produced Juju for the Banshees, obviously a 
another big early influence on Lush. And then the rest of the record is really quite different to those singles. Yes. And generally, just reading their biography, I was like, oh my God, because they're constantly <laughs> thwarted by the music industry that they didn't really understand. And, you know, in very much the same way as the early days of Lush in your book. Yes. I mean, it sounds like they had quite, and also quite a lot of lineup changes, I think, in the Passions. Was there people who came like, yeah, one, there was, one member would leave? That's and then... right. There was certainly a swap early on. I think was Claire was replaced by David on the bass. And... I mean, I think but, the one thing that we had was 4AD. You know, yeah. it sounds like they, you know, yeah, and, and although it became a bit difficult. Uh, see, she just, I think she described Polydora as, 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 as worse than useless. Um, and they did like they did they did some TV appearances for Film Star, but not enough to help it out. There is another great story on the Passions biography where the drummer Richard is uh, ejected from a TV studio somewhere in Scandinavia because Dave Edmonds is playing Girls Talk and Richard is audible on the back of the studio shouting "sexist rubbish." <laughs> and I thought that's such a lush story. Yes. Mickey's book is full of incidents of you shouting "sexist rubbish" or you know the equivalent. For I know it's brilliant. And there's two for most of the nineties. There's there's two songs here which kind of in in a way kind of also get that kind of duality mm. of um, lush ones. The track Bachelor Girl, which is two... I mean, it's a two-minute song, and two-minute songs are always great. It's a two-minute song about basically girls on the lash, isn't it? Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. And it's amazing. It's got, and there's, and there's, a, it, there's this line like, the bars are full and there's a queue at the door for the band they've all been waiting for. And the bars are full and there's a queue at the door Bachelor Girls, released by Polydor. And it's like it could be a soundtrack to the chapters in your book when you're writing about going out to all the gigs. There's another line that's about... Oh, is it? Oh, God, I've got the lyrics in front of me. Hang it was on, something we can, like... You can get the lyrics up if you want. We something about who, who they're going to go home with tonight oh, yes. or something. <laughs> oh, no, I looked for the lyrics. There's nowhere where the... It's the impossible li- to yeah. find them. No one has put the lyrics up online. Yeah. Yeah, there's basically the line about the girls choosing who they're going to cop off with. Out on the with. pool. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And it's not, you know, it, it's done with no irony or shame it's just straight ahead kind of like this is what we're doing tonight i mean it's it's difficult with lyrics though isn't it because i couldn't when i listened to it again i thought are they are they sort of taking the piss a bit is she sort of going like oh you know these are the sort of it's just you know like boys and girls or something is a bit kind of like oh we're not the bachelor girls these are yeah these are the sort of girls out town and in their white stilettos on the pool but it's not because it's about you know heaving bars and and queuing up to see bands isn't it so it seems to be that it's about you think it's a celebration i think it sounds like a celebration i mean it was to me yeah i got that impression too yeah but the one thing that struck me was you know feeling that kind of elation that you get when you're out and you're pissed and your girlfriends are there and the you know the noise levels are really high because everyone's whooping and then particularly in your book mickey there are so many occasions where the line is crossed and the situation suddenly turns a bit sinister really you know really easily because you know there's really young girls and they don't know what they're doing or where they are if they've had too much to drink and i was thinking of there's quite a few 
instances in the book where there's an attempted sexual assault on you and there's this groping at gigs and all this shit that's just was horribly familiar to me too. Yeah, I mean, I think... You know what was weird was that when I was the age of this, you know, 13, 14, going to those sort of big gigs, at, uh, what felt like big gigs at the Palais and Lyceum and, you know, chart band, soft cell and mm. whatever. Like, that was the worst crap I ever had to put up with, mm. frankly, right? Just the aggression and the groping. And clearly you're like a child, yeah. But the diaries are full of, like, you know, some bloke sticking his hand between my legs, you know, mm. some bloke trying to fucking stick his tongue down mm. my throat. You know what I mean? You're kind of crushed into this crowd. There was no way you could go. Mm. But actually, once I sort of started going to gigs, well, going to gigs with blokes, you mm. know, it helps to have a bunch of blokes around who... And then when it's more of a mosh pit and things like that, it, it just didn't feel that... Like, no one was really trying to cop a feel. It just seemed much more of a mainstream thing, which is why I think that alternative mm, world always attracted me a lot more. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club. You write really positively about um, the group of bands that were kind of dubbed in a pejorative way, but you defend it as not pejorative, the scene that celebrates itself. Mm. You know, and you basically said what this really means is people looking out for each other. Mm. And yeah. you know, and kind of and, and just checking that everyone was okay. And you kind of and you then so suddenly when you get that stark contrast with what's going on in the Britpop world, it's so much more sort of vivid in the book because you've kind of contrasted it with this kind of what now, when you look back on it, seems like kind of quite a benevolent and, you know, relatively safe world. Yeah, but I think Shoegaze was like that. I think 4AD was like that. Yeah. Mm. You know, I think a lot of... Um, I don't know, it just felt really uncool to slag off other bands. Yeah. You know, you'd bitch about them and you go, well, they don't deserve that cover or whatever. Yeah. You know, everybody gets a bit snarky. But to be openly like lacking that solidarity was just really uncool. Yeah. So when Britpop came along and it was all like, yeah, everyone else is crap but me, I just thought I don't recognise it. I know there are bands who did that before. The Mary Chain were always like, everyone else is shit except us. <laughs> but you know how that's almost like a parody because yeah. they're so yeah. grumpy yeah. and intolerant. Yeah, they were quite funny with it, weren't yeah. they? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so miserable. That they yeah, and that was kind of their shtick. And disagreed and... with every question. There's, there's those famous <laughs> TV clips with them where they're kind of someone will say, like, you know, you were you influenced by the Sex Pistols or something? <laughs> and they'll just get so angry <laughs> that they've been compared to anybody. And and, it's, and, it, and you're right, they were they were funny with it. And then after, after a certain point, it stops being funny. Exactly, because you never listened, you never thought that the Mary Chain seemed entitled. That was not yeah. part of it. They were a bit chippy. Yeah. And they were kind of, you know, a bit, I mean, they always looked quite introverted, actually, yes. you know, and quite thin skinned in yeah. that way. But I think Britpop was all about larging it and, and just trampling people and pushing them mm. aside and elbowing them out of the way. And it's just not my thing well, it's, at all. It's really interesting read, reading your book because there was someone on Twitter the other day who was basically saying, is, you know, is there going to be the point where basically somebody writes like almost like 
the anti, you know, the was John John Harris's book called The Last Party? Party. Yeah, the, the the a kind of corrective to that is due a kind of after the fact book about you know what was really going on during Britpop that wasn't very nice at all, and it feels like your the, the chapter chapters in your book feel very much about that. that you know where it's like kind of this was really unpleasant. Well, I mean, I think the problem is, is if you don't even mention that stuff, yeah. then it starts to fester. Yeah. And people are like, you know, I don't like stuff being lied about. And I think there was some great stuff with Britpop. There was yes. some really good fun and there was a real hedonistic rush to it. Loads of people I know who were on the outside said they loved that period of music. Great Happy days, you know what I mean? But if you're not going to mention the other crap that went on, well, then it's just bollocks, isn't it, really? And I don't see what the problem is with mentioning that. I think it's interesting. Yes, absolutely. It doesn't have to be a complete takedown. It's it's complicated. You know, a lot of those bands were totally sort of pushed into behaving like that, you know, by the press, by Mm. the promotion... That's what they expected well, like, I mean, from them. A band like Menswear is a fascinating example, you know, who kind of like, you know, who else, who who could have survived what happened to them? You know, mm. the ridiculous amount of hype and kind of and, and all the kind of, you know, free things that were thrown at them, for want of a better phrase, you know, and kind of, and, 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 and again, that sense of entitlement and privilege that was placed at their feet. Well, and also the idea that every bloke was had to sort of act like some beery shag monster. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which actually, when you see the individual people in menswear, that's not what they're like <laughs> no. at all. Yeah. You know, they're quite fragile in yeah. their own way. But that side of it was not allowed to be presented. No. You know? but, it, but I think kind of like like the rest of the book in the way, I think you're kind of very at ease with approaching the complexities of a, of a subject or a situation and kind of just saying, you know... the as we said earlier, the grey areas that kind yeah. of exist within all the different mm. narratives. And trying to find some insight into it. Having said that, one of the most appalling episodes, I think, is the Primal Scream entourage <laughs> story, where it's hard to find, you know, any <laughs> kind of productive insight from that. These are just horrible, horrible people. <laughs> so, oh, my God. And, uh, no, and what, sorry, there is a question in here. Uh, <laughs> You change names of this particularly horrible individual in Primal Screen's entourage, and I wondered where, at what point, do the publishers say, oh, you've got to tell people that they're going to be involved in this and you can some change names, names if they keep. don't give permission? or yeah. what's? I mean, you know, I am not there to roast people over the coals, as I said. Though, you know, yes, I my experience was with that Primal Scream entourage. There were some lovely people in that entourage. I just wasn't going to, you know, you sort of feel like I'm not going to spend an entire chapter talking about, oh, but this person was really nice and this person did this. Mm. There's a point at which I just haven't got the time to do it. But it could have been any other band. It could have probably been the Happy Mondays. Do you know what I mean? It could have been an other band that were living out some rock and roll fantasy and that behaviour was part of mm. what they thought was cool, that no one ever sort of raised a hand and went like, you know, this is quite ugly, actually. Mm. Um, so, again, it's about my experience of it. I didn't name him, partly, and there's one other person I don't name either, for exactly that reason. You know, there is a side to that person who was, 
you know, quite fragile, actually. And mm. I think was actually, you know, encouraged into their worst behaviour by the kind of environment mm. around them. Okay, I've never seen them again since that time. So I have no idea what their life is like now, whether they've yeah. sorted themselves out. But I knew a lot of the problems they had. Mm. The problem is, is at some point, you know, your sympathy runs dry. It's like, well, I do feel sorry for you and I know you're struggling, but you're also being an astronomical dick to me. Well, there's just so, this <laughs> really pathological behaviour and sort of what we would call stalking now that goes on and on after your relationship. And then brilliantly, you managed to put an end to the whole thing just when you finally snap and push him yeah, against the wall I and mean, say... again, you know, I wanted to give credit where it's due that it was actually one of his own entourage that, you know, it took that for them to go, you know, he's a bully and mm. I promise you, if he, if he just needs to be stood up to. Yeah. I probably wouldn't have done it otherwise, you know. So, again, it's not as simple as, you know, terrible bunch of people... Oh my God! I got in, I've got involved with mm. a bad crowd, and now I'm paying the price. There were some lovely people there. There was some shit people there. There was a general yeah. level of behaviour, and I think that that particular person wouldn't possibly have not behaved like that if they'd have been in a different environment. I don't know mm. because I never got to find yeah. out what they mm, were like before to? or after. Yeah. But you know, I think with all of the people that I mention in the book, you know, there are some I name, some one or two I don't. But I've always tried to qualify it that these are not terrible individual people. It's, there will be other people who know them who go, oh, I don't recognise that person. Mm -hmm. When I knew them, they were lovely. And I, and I think, yeah, well, that might be because you weren't a girl, for one. Yeah. It might be because you weren't in a band and therefore fair game. I mean, you know, and... I just think I'm not there to sort of crucify people. It's just to flag up um, that people can behave terribly, mm. you know, and it doesn't help when everybody else bloody well goes along with it. No, exactly. The crowd psychology of Absolutely. it's grim, isn't it? I want to bring it back to... But just really because... Um, and it, if I'm trying, if if I can wangle a link out of this, it's really it's really about we were talking about very much the two sides of that group, but also the two sides of 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 Lush and just that there was a world, a musical world that shoegaze and scene that celebrates itself in 4AD created that felt very introspective, very warm, very safe and you know but also you know melancholy and elliptical and there's a track on the passions album that seems kind of massively kind of part of that world which is alice's song which kind of is it's a song about the end an end of a relationship and it's very much i suppose the flip side to, to bachelor girls if we were talking about that track as kind of somehow needing an answer record to say that there's the, you know the melancholy and the loneliness that exists in that world as well but also it's, it feels very ahead of the curve in terms of dream pop, shoegaze and everything, doesn't it? It feels like a, when you listen to the album now, you think you, it's one of those albums where you can say, this record was ahead of its time.
Passions, Alice's Song, released by Polydor. I think I also liked it because it was um, it's three four time signature as well, um, which you know was always quite an unusual thing that Lush did. Yeah, you know, it wasn't. There's a slight folkiness yes. to that, um, and I think what as well the Passions did. There's a lot of kind of you know there's songs that change tempo halfway through song, you know, and even just change mood halfway through. Mm. And I kind of get, I think with Lush, because we weren't amazing musicians, right, you just could not rely on, oh, a spectacular vocal performance or some fantastic guitar solo. So there's quite a lot of invention that had to be thrown into the actual songwriting. Yeah. Different time signatures, all of that kind of, you know, um, odd changes in key or, or whatever that were, were just guessed at, really. I mean, we had no proper musical training. And I can see that in the passions as well. There's yeah. quite a lot of experimentation with sounds and tempos and instrumental sections mm -hmm. and kind of tricks and stuff. Yeah. But because it's got this sort of overall mood, like they do have an identity. They're not just sort of going, oh, this is our fast song, this is our this song. There's a sort of overarching, obviously, her voice that has that kind of slightly melancholy tug to it. Yeah. Um, so I can see loads there. Now, when I listen to it now, I think, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see where Lush would have felt, well, we can do that because yeah. I've heard that done before. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I thought it was interesting that, that that echoey guitar sound that they have that, you know, you definitely can hear Lush in apparently was a really early U2 influence because Barbara was their sort of Dublin connection and U2 had been to see them you know, really early on. Yeah. It's like, wow, okay, because it's not tangible. You know, you don't listen to that band and think, oh, they sound like U2. But, but, you, you, know. can, but you, can, yeah, you can go back to it now and think, this, is, this does feel really ahead of its time. I'm, yeah. really, I'm really pleased that you chose this record. <laughs> it's great because it's like, what I, in a way, what I want out of this podcast is, you know, records where someone immediately looks at it and goes... Why have they chosen that? <laughs> you know, I don't, or, or they only know it from German film star. They know the one mm. track, as you mm. would say. They know the hit. And then you get lost in the record and you just think, this is absolutely magnificent. So thank you. Thank you for bringing it in. You're welcome. Um, You're listening to the Mojo Record Club. It's the spot on the show where we talk about a couple of the other records that we've been listening to. Well, we got there already. Yeah, we have. Jenny, okay. what have you been okay. listening to this um, week? This week... I bring you uh, Kiwi Junior, and their record is their third album. It's called Chopper, and uh, Kiwi Junior are Canadians. They're based in somewhere in Canada, Toronto, <laughs> Toronto. That's where, but they're from somewhere else, some island. Anyway, yeah, yeah. but the interesting thing about them for me is that, that, as their name suggests, they exist on this sort of axis of jangly, smart vaguely psychedelic guitar pop. A sort of flying nun kind the, of yeah, world. That yeah, that you can identify with the flying nun bands like the Clean and the Chills and then over in Australia, you know, the go-betweens and then, you know, obviously the East Coast American bands like Pavement who are a very, very audible influence on them. But one thing I genuinely love about this band is that they're, you know, as well as being kind of droll, they're really, really smart musicians. There's none of that verge of collapse that you've got with 
yeah. pavement at a sort of similar point in their career. Uh, the song that I believe Andrew's going to play is, is called The Extra Sees the Film, yeah. which is already sort of, you know, a film within a song within a... And their uh, lyricist Jeremy Godet writes a dialogue for this imaginary film as part of the lyrics, and it's really funny. And there's a bit, there's a reference to some guy wearing Ryan Gosling's scorpion jacket from the drive. From drive film, yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. sorry, the drive. <laughs> yes, that's old people <laughs> say. Yes. He was in the drive, wasn't yes. he? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I didn't really know much about them, and I, and you, you sent me this track, and I absolutely love it. I love the way in which kind of there's a there's a constant forward motion with the lyrics. There's no kind mm. of verse chorus. It's just like kind of I'm just going to keep pushing forward, yeah. sort of almost stream of consciousness with this. Yeah, so I absolutely definitely. love that. Was fantastic. And it ends with uh, the extra sees the film and covers up his name badge. Kiwi Junior, the extra sees the film. Released on Sub Pop. Well, my album of the week is Rich Ruth's I Survived, It's Over, which is on out on Third Man Records on August the 12th. Now, he was a former Tennessee touring musician, Michael Rich Ruth, who, following a carjacking in 2018, retreated to his home studio to start making ambient electronic music. But this one, which he recorded in lockdown and is inspired by John Coltrane's Ascension, is huge. It's this kind of wild, spiralling, euphoric space jazz. And the, the track that we're going to play, Older But Not Less Confused, starts in this kind of world of... Again. I know. <laughs> starts in this world of flutes and wobbling synths and skittering drums, but then takes off into the cosmos. It's absolutely magnificent. And uh, so we'll hear a little bit of that as well. everything we were going to talk about oh, isn't we've it? not got time for the nada surfery issue we can which is, which is my you, real album okay so. all right go on. <laughs> do you do you want to say what Shall your I real segue album? cleverly yeah please no, segue okay. cleverly into um, it there is a song on the kiwi junior album that mentions outcast the band yeah and of course pavement do lots of mentioning of other bands in their songs in fact they've got a whole song about rem haven't they yeah great um but nada surf are reissuing on vinyl this month their album Let Go, which is a huge favourite of mine, and Andrew's. And there is a song on there about listening to Blonde on Blonde. So I don't know why I always like it when bands mention other oh, bands. absolutely, always. It's like when people from Neighbours appeared on EastEnders. Or, 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 or when singers mention their own name in a song as oh, well. This like is, this, is, this, this is, is Phil, Phil talking. talking. Yeah, no. or kind of hi, people come up and say, hi, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, I mean, the, the Nada Surf album um, 
because I think you want me to tell this tragic story about when when it oh, came yes, out. When it came out um, <laughs> in back in the days of CD Walkman and everything, I was um, I I'd interviewed the Strokes in New York, and I'd met this um, young woman, and we'd stayed in touch uh, via Friendster. Do you remember Friendster, <laughs> which was kind Sorry. of the, the pre Amazing. pre Facebook kind of. Um, uh, internet communication system brilliant and um, and I went I was going over to do a, a feature on Sonic Youth and I said I'm coming I'm coming over to LA and we can meet up it'll be great and she said oh fantastic brilliant and I think in the interim she'd kind of maybe forgotten what I looked like <laughs> because when she met me at the airport I just saw her face sink oh, in disappointment no. and and she said oh yeah you can you can stay here and she basically put me up her, her friend's apartment and then I didn't see her for about four days <laughs> and all I had to listen to was like your story Mickey about the cassette and when you've just got one album on cassette all I had to listen to was Let Go by Nada Surf and so I just played it endlessly feeling sorry for myself <laughs> and and then my friend jay rescued me my, i got a friend jay who who lives out in in um la and he basically came and rescued me and i went to stay with him <laughs> but that album will always remind me i mean it's a fantastic record and it's full of kind of songs yeah, really of melancholy. romantic melancholy songs and and boys feeling sorry for themselves and things <laughs> yeah. like that and so it will always make me think about being yeah. abandoned in la by a yeah, it's one of those a, properly... a young woman who was disappointed oh. with me when she saw me at the airport. It's one of those properly <laughs> timeless records. I mean, yeah. it's funny to say you the, the Strokes because it came out at the time of the Strokes and the White Stripes, and its sound is informed by none of that. It yeah. is completely on its own because this is a band who'd been through the MTV era. They'd had this one big hit, popular, which they obviously couldn't live up to because you know very few people can live up to those. MTV smashes. So I think this, you know, they were dropped from their major label. They went and made this record just for the sheer love of you um, know, did they just pay great for it, songs. Pay for it themselves. I think they it, yeah. did, yeah. And as such, it now doesn't sound like it could have come out at any time. Yeah. It's brilliant. Everyone else rushing around. I've got blonde. by Heavenly. Fantastic. Thanks, Jenny. Thank you, Mickey. That's all right. Okay, you've been listening to Mickey Bereni, Jenny Bully and myself, Andrew Mayo. And now we'd like to hear from you. If you have any questions, requests for records you'd like us to talk about or guests you'd like us to have on the show, then please get in touch. Send your emails and voice notes to mojoreaders at bowermedia.com co.uk that was the mojo record club we hope to see you at the next one you can all join in and look in the episode description for full details of all the tracks we played and how to sign up for the next episode you've been listening to the mojo record club with me mickey bereni i hope you've enjoyed it sorry i didn't know what to say <laughs> Free sliced stone.